Riverside. <laughs> Good morning, Mr. Wide. How are Good you? Good morning, Mrs. Angel. I'm very, very well. How are you? Oh, uh, our YouTube watchers of our podcast, there's not <laughs> many of them, lots of listeners, Ross, but not a whole lot of watchers on YouTube. Um, but we, they will see that we have a very special guest joining us. Uh, here's Mr. Ross Fox, who is the Director of a Catholic Education in the Archdiocese of Canberra and Goulburn. And our list- long-time listeners will know that I'm a big fan of Ross Fox and talk about his work all the time. So welcome. Thank you for joining us, Ross. Mm, thanks very much. It's a great pleasure to be with you. All right. Well, we're going to get right into telling Ross's story. So you've got a bio there, Mr. White. Let's kick it off. Yes. Uh, Mr. Ross Fox was appointed as Director of Catholic Education in the Archdiocese of Canberra and Goulburn in December 2016. In this role, he had responsibility for a system of 56 Catholic schools across both ACT and New South Wales with over 22,000 students and more than 2,000 staff. He has held senior positions in Catholic education across Australia, including Executive Director of the National Catholic Education Commission and Director of Policy, Research and Communications in the Catholic Education Office of Melbourne. Ross has been a member of the National Catholic Education Commission since 2013. He grew up in country Victoria and studied engineering at the University of New South Wales. Later, he read philosophy, politics and economics at Oxford University. He was appointed as an independent director of the Australian Council for Education Leaders in 2016. Ross is inspired by the great contribution that Catholic schools and educators have made to Australia and shares a passion for seeing child seeing every child benefit from quality teaching and learning. Fantastic. Welcome, Ross Fox. Ah, the crowd... The crowd loves you, Ross. Big crowd, big crowd today. Uh, big crowd, I know. We've, um, I'm recording from St. Bede's today and there's a big crowd here, very excited that we're uh, interviewing their main man, Mr. Ross Fox. So thank you for joining us, Ross. Very excited, Sharon, and big, very excited to join you, Will. Great. Big story to tell. Um, and But let's kick off, first of all, with what we always like to hear, who is a teacher who has inspired you to have kind of the impact or you've learnt something significantly from in your your life so far? Well, there's so many inspiring teachers that I've had the pleasure of having teach me, but particularly I remember when I think back to my schooling days, my year 12 specialist maths teacher, um, Mr Evans, uh, he had a real laconic humour, which just drew um, the, the sort of teenagers and the, the senior secondary students in. Uh, but he was always uh, really pushing us forward to do better, to learn more, to think carefully about our approach to mathematics, and he always really believed in us. Uh, I took so much away from him, and I that I probably was successful at my engineering degree in significant part because of his great teaching of mathematics. And did you ever mm. get a chance to? Does he know that you that he had such a significant impact on you? Look, I've, I haven't seen him for probably at least 15 or 20 years, but, uh, you know, five or 10 years after school, I ran into him. Uh, and, yeah, I did share with him uh, that it had been a really great experience that I've learned so much. And I, it's probably like um, many people, you don't realise at the time, 
how significant yes. those teachers are and it's only on reflection that you realise they were part of an inflection point, a turning point, a sort of launching pad. Uh, and so at the time uh, when he was teaching me, I probably didn't realise how great he was and I've had the opportunity yeah, in the, in the decade after I left school to share that with him, which is a, a good thing. That's very cool. And we, as as teachers, Whitey and I often, we talk about those moments that we have with kids where where we know that we've had an impact, but the most, your best day is also always when a student comes and, and tells you that you've made an impact on them. So we never tire of hearing it. So no, we, do uh, not. we will see if we can tag Mr. Evans into this. And does he know? Does he know what you are doing now and the work that you're leading now? Oh, I don't know. I I haven't had cause to be in contact with him um, or hear from him for some time. So I really don't know, actually. Well, well you do have cause now. Yeah, you better give him a word, tee him up that he's going to be on a world famous podcast, and make sure that he he gets a recording of it and he can listen to it. That's right. That's right. We'll see. We'll see if we can find him for you, Ross, and we'll um, we'll spread the word. So, and this would be particularly great for for him to hear because the work that you are leading across these fifty six schools that. Is, is a massive source of inspiration for me and something that I really wanted to be involved in. I've talked um, at length on this podcast about my trips when I come down to Canberra to work with these great schools and uh, and the work of Catalyst. But we would, I'd love to hear you kind of talk through the how this brainchild came to be and what it started at and and where it is now and and maybe what the plans, what the impact has been and the plan for the future. So. Um... It's a it's a big story. Uh, so about seven, almost seven years ago, I started uh, as director of Catholic education, and I really spent the first year talking to teachers, talking to principals, talking to parents, talking to students about how they felt about where um, the schools were at, whether we were living up to their expectations and aspirations. Uh, we did a strategic planning process to produce our new strategic plan. And really what I heard very clearly, uh, we had incredibly committed teachers, um, great leaders. Uh, we had parents who were devoted to our schools and students who loved being at our schools. And there was a couple of conversations that really challenged me. Particularly, I remember one parent sitting down with one parent and the parent saying, your school is wonderful. It's an incredibly inclusive community. It's a pity about the, the results that we've got. Um, so that was sort of, for me, a bit of a challenge, um, that we needed to meet people, the parents and students' expectations in terms of learning outcomes. They said it was incredibly welcoming community. Everyone's cared for, everyone feels included, but it's a pity about your results. And then what I really saw, as I said, that there was no shortage of dedication, commitment, hard work from our teachers and our principals, but over some years, we just were not getting the achievement, the traction, the improvement that we expected. And so we really had to think deeply so about what we we're doing, how we we're going to improve, because it just seemed to me, and by the way, you know, the Archdiocese of Canberra-Golburn is a curious construction. We're, we've got in its heart um, the ACT, which is a very privileged community, a very advantaged community, 
And really, I, I think there's no reason why an education system based in the ACT can't be among the best in Australia, if not the best in the world. We don't really have uh, anything missing. But the Archdiocese of Canberra and Goulburn also includes 27 schools throughout New South Wales, ranging from 30 uh, children um, in quite uh, distant regional towns and cities. So uh, it is very diverse. But again, I, I felt we weren't achieving what we should have uh, for the hard work, for the effort, for everything that we we're putting in. Uh, around uh, a year into the role, uh, my first child was born, um, Jedediah. So uh, my, I got my first boy in the family. Uh, and there was a strange thing that happened uh, in the days following that. I thought, oh, gee, I'm an educational leader. Uh, we're, we're not doing too badly in the system, but I don't feel confident that I know how my son is going to learn to read and what is important in his uh, acquisition of early literacy and the journey thereafter. Uh, so I have a fairly um, insatiable appetite. In, I'm intellectually curious. Uh, and I just started trying to find out what we understood and believed about how students learned to read. Uh, so that took me to um, a very diverse set of literature, including um, Goodman. Uh, and Goodman is an advocate for whole language and balanced literacy. And when I really interrogate it, because I'm, I'm not a trained educator, but I pride myself on being quite rational, clear thinking and logical. And when I interrogated what he'd actually written, what his argument was, what the logic was, I, it just didn't strike me that it was all logical and that following a balanced literacy or a whole language approach, it might work for some, but it's not guaranteed to work for all. Uh, and so that set us off in an inquiry, a reflection, an investigation. Um, so I got into the science of reading as a result of that, uh, an investigation, an understanding of the contemporary research, um, the importance of phonics amongst other early literacy skills, and then it also there was also a day um, where I went to two principal farewells in my archdiocese, one at um, St Mary's Maruya, and then after that principal farewell, I drove to St Mary's West Wyalong, and it's about a, a four-hour drive between those two places. Uh, I listened to a number of podcasts of the recently, um, and sorry to mention a competing podcast, but the recently sort of instigated Ollie Lovell Education Research Reading Room. I'm a and big there's fan. a particular podcast uh, who he interviews Lorraine Hammond yeah. about instructional coaching. And what I heard Lorraine say, and it's quite a while ago now I heard it, but I heard her say she had a distinctive idea about instructional coaching in two ways. One that she she believed as a result of research, reflection and practice, she was really good at instructional um, delivery and therefore the coaching should be about how you uh, emulate her practice because she'd refined it over time and so of course so that got me thinking that actually there might be a very clear way to teach that respects the students needs that's the most efficient um, and obviously not obviously but very prominent in that account is the role of explicit instruction or explicit teaching and that's before we get to different types of programs scripting non-scripting whatever but just the simple idea that if we want a student to know something, the best way to begin the teaching is to tell them what we want to, 
them to know, to chunk it down, explain it in clear concepts, make sure they've understood it before we do anything else. So we were also at that time, to be honest, a system committed to inquiry. That wasn't necessarily a bad thing if we had a razor-sharp understanding of inquiry and we were confident as teachers and schools we were able to expose the students to uh, concepts that they reliably learned. And really, we didn't have a clear concept of what it meant, and it didn't follow any scientific understanding through cognitive psychology or anything else of how students actually learn. So I, I felt that I was seeing pedagogy that didn't respond to the needs of students. It was founded in sort of different ideas, well-intentioned, but ultimately unreliable and um, often ineffective. In some instances, we had schools whose half of their cohorts were in reading interventions because of the um, the failure, I guess, of our uh, in-classroom instruction. Instruction. So, so that mm. that started, we, we had to do a big reflection. We actually um, got 20 leaders from across the system, about 10 principals, five leaders in the office, including myself, and five teachers and assistant principals. And we sat in a room for a day and heard from a variety of people and then went and visited schools for three days, almost none of them Catholic because we didn't want to, we wanted to focus in on teaching and learning. And then we came together for a day and unpacked what we'd saw. And one of the things I remember very vividly visiting a school in Perth where it felt like the teacher at the front of the class was doing aerobics or that's, that was sort of the impression. And so it was incredibly foreign, incredibly challenging. But of course, she was doing a form of explicit instruction. She was uh, providing an amazingly fast-paced experience for the students with lots of cognitive opportunities for them to learn, lots of checking for understanding, lots of retrieval practice. It was totally foreign to me and my colleagues as to what was going on there. And so after that was one of the pivotal moments. And after that, really, the question that I came away with was what was our account as a system, as a group of professional educators, for the role of explicit instruction in our approach to learning and teaching? And so that led us to lots of deep thinking, interrogation and thought on Rosenstein's principles of instruction, um, a a range of uh, literature looking at the science of reading, the science of learning, what that meant for how we should design and respond to um, to the needs of students and our approach to learning and teaching. And then just I'll, I'll make a couple more comments and then I'll let you ask me further questions. But uh, I also, I was really, had a voracious appetite to read more and understand more. And one of the things I read was Why Knowledge Matters by E.D. Hirsch, which I think is an amazing book um, about the role of knowledge in learning and how we should be very wary of de-emphasising the importance of knowledge. And that uh, there's a number of great books and podcasts about this, but the idea that um, it it can come across sometimes in the current discussion in schools that we're sort of indifferent to knowledge, that we just want to get to the deep understanding, the deep conceptual understanding. And I've heard the analogy recently that it's sort of, like saying you like cakes but you don't like the ingredients and you can't have deep conceptual understanding you can't have creativity unless the student has access at their disposal to great a great body of knowledge that they've committed to their memory and of course so that and and one of the things in that was a recognition that we needed to have a really clear definition of learning the definition of learning that i like is that learning's a change in long-term memory 
and why that's important is because that puts huge demands on what our pedagogy and our approach to learning and teaching needs to look like if it's to change the long-term memory of our students and give them ultimately the knowledge that they can use to be incredibly creative, curious, inquiring, engage in deep conceptual understanding, but they can only do it through a commitment to knowledge. And so that we've really made, you know, we, we set out with a concept that we had to respect the science of learning and the science of reading. And there's, of course, a big story then about how we thought about what that meant and how we then pursued change. And I can talk more about that depending on where you want to go. Yeah, right, there, you go first, Whitey. Well, there does seem to be a, I think, there has been a stigma almost on on the idea of teaching students closed-ended stuff, like just knowledge and just almost like rote learning and the, the, the attitude that most teachers have towards the idea of rote learning. But you need to have that stuff ingrained before you can take on new information and process it and synthesize it. And I think, you know, we're... I've seen a shift in the last few years from my perspective away from teaching by osmosis to teaching in a much more structured way. Now, you're coming at this from an engineering back, uh, background, so you probably have a really good understanding of the parts and processes. Um, you're naturally you know, bent that way. I'm interested, how did you get your staff sold on this idea and get it actually moving? Um. So it's a, it's a really good question. So we were just trying to be open. I, like, so I, as I said, I'm not a trained educator, but I was passionate that a few things should be true, that it should be as easy as possible to be a great teacher. And the system had a role in helping that. And a great teacher meant not just that the student liked them, and maybe that's important, not just that the teacher knew their name. Of, I believe that happens all, everywhere in our system but actually the teacher could reliably guarantee learn, the learning of the student in accordance with our expectations. So we wanted we wanted to be confident that was happening. So, and, and just by the way, so um, one of the things I've been influenced by is, yeah, there is this anti-rote learning sort of statement and I have a simple retort to it. You can learn by rote or you can learn by heart. And in Catholic education, we've got a profound vision for, you know, what it, the dignity of the human person is, what the human is. I believe when someone learns something, they're changed. They're changed as a person. They be, they gain greater capability, greater, um, I guess, greater power in the world. And that's what we aspire to have for every one of our students. So how did we change it? We just kept exposing our staff and our um, and our leaders to new information and said, well, what does this mean? Because as I said, I'm not a trained educator, so I didn't have a view on whether inquiry was better than explicit instruction. I just wanted it to be as easy as possible to be a great, great teacher and then to have students learning reliably and whatever it meant to investigate, to think about, we needed to pursue. So, for example, I remember very vividly a meeting with uh, a number of our principals where I was giving a talk as director about what we were thinking about in terms of learning and teaching, how we needed to be open to different ideas, and I had a slide and all it had on it was the word explicit in sort of 200-point font. And there was almost pandemonium in the room when I put this word up because people thought it was some regressive agenda, some, um, you know, you were constraining teacher autonomy, professionalism, all these things that are slightly predictable. 
But all I was, uh, again, asking was what account do we have of explicit instructions, role and importance in efficient learning for our students? And that was one of the learnings when we went through this discussion. We didn't appear to have a priority for efficient learning because I think it's something like a student has about a million minutes of instruction over the 13 years of their schooling. So we have to, it's our role as professional educators and people like Siegfried Gendelman are very clear on this. We've got to be desperately efficient with their time. We owe it to them. And we know that there's a massive opportunity cost because if we don't help the student to learn, to commit something to memory, that means that they can't tackle the next uh, task or piece of knowledge that we aspire to uh, have them succeed in because knowledge sticks to knowledge. That knowledge will help them uh, perform skills, etc. So it was really a um, a matter of just continuing to share the readings, the podcasts, the research to reflect and to get people like Pamela Snow, Lorraine Hammond and others reflecting on what what recent cognitive science had to say about how students learn and then slowly, I guess, uncover our existing beliefs, prejudices and sometimes biases about approaches to learning and then genuinely reflect because we're asking, we're asking our staff to change things that they've been doing for decades. Um, and that's a serious, serious thing, that the habits they've formed, the beliefs. And uh, ironically, in Catholic education, we've got lots of teachers and principals now who are really relating conversion stories. I've had conversations with principals where they say, uh, when I began as a principal 10 or so years ago, my professional identity as a teacher and a school leader was innately dependent on an idea of inquiry learning. I thought that was essential to who I was as an educator. And then they finished the story by saying, and I now realise it was entirely wrong. It was misguided. Uh, they, this is them telling me this. So I don't think they're entirely wrong, but as far as effective learning, the the philosophy, the ideology that they took to it, to the task and to their leadership, did not um, result in great learning improvement. And so... So it was really just getting people to reflect and reflect. And then what's happened um, recently is that teachers have, it's gotten into classrooms, teachers with the help of lots of coaches, uh, you know, I think doing practice or performing pedagogy, learning and leading teaching and learning in their classroom in excellent ways, really profoundly different ways. And the most encouraging thing for me is when teachers turn around to me in the school and in their classroom and say, don't take this away from us because the students are learning. The students are learning now. And that's the exciting thing because that, so how you change minds is you show people that actually, because we're all in it for the learning of the students. We're all in it yeah. for their welfare. So it, it was quite a journey to convince people that stars aligned, done well, implemented well, this was in, to the benefit of students. And so there's, there's, I think we're seeing that and, you know, uh, Sharon can probably uh, comment more on that experience with teachers, but that's ultimately um, the exposure, the open-mindedness, the commitment to reflection, and then um, demonstrating that it actually can work. And the feedback from the students to the teachers is the greatest affirmation of self-efficacy um, that you can imagine. I couldn't agree more, Ross. And so I, I feel like, it, you, you've kind of simplified what you've done here, but you've if you've got 22,000 kids, how many teachers are we talking about here? So it's about a 3,000 headcount. It's sort of almost 2,000 full-time equivalents. So yeah. look, and, 
I, I don't think so. Uh, the simplest way to think about it in our case, we've got about a thousand classrooms, and mm-hmm. so that was one of the things. So, um, so uh, what I, I guess what I've described is probably our journey to conceptual clarity about what our vision or understanding or aspiration should be for how we go about learning and teaching, what happens in the classroom in pedagogy, curriculum, assessment. Yes, our commitment to this is. Yeah, is this. And then, of course, we had to think about, oh, so we've got a 1,000 classrooms. The the task for a system leader is to ensure that in every one of those 1,000 classrooms, great learning and teaching is going on as often as possible. And so, so we had to have lots of conversations at a system level about, oh, this is a really interesting idea, but we don't think it's going to change what's going on in the classroom. So therefore, why is it important? Um, and so you have to deprioritize a lot of things because unless it's going to help the teacher um, be effective in, in the leadership of the learning and teaching in their classroom, uh, in the consistent with the science of learning, the science of reading, high-impact teaching practice, then it's probably not important. And you have to think very carefully about will it be a distraction? So there was yep. a there's a whole yep. sort of reflection about keeping that conceptual clarity so that we didn't have erroneous things. We didn't have Dylan Williams sort of lethal mutations happening in terms of our program design, our support mm-hmm. to teachers, because it's so easy to get off track. Um, but one of my reflections as a system leader in education is definitely that, unfortunately, in education, we've got too much of an interest in being innovative and novel rather than effective. And I just want every classroom um, to be in a place of effective learning. And uh, so we've got to be able to say no confidently to novelty if it's not serving effectiveness. We're going to be productive. Oh, see, my, my definition of innovative is or innovation is um, solutions to problems. And, and, and you don't want to go for a novel. With education, you don't have to go for a novel solution to 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 the problem of educating all students. Like it's it's right there. There is there is science. Uh, there's a huge amount of research that actually points you in the right direction uh, mm. if you're willing to engage in it. And you've given your staff. Uh, I, I feel like I, I, the story I tell of Ross Fox or what what has been created here in CG is that you looked at it. Is this a skill or a will thing? Do we do people? not um not know about this or do they know about it and they're actively working against it and and I know from the schools that I'm working with I know that it it was it was a, it was definitely a skill thing not a will thing they they didn't learn about this at university yeah. they and and that's a whole nother um another avenue that we can go down because there's exciting changes happening now across Australia with how university education students are going to be educated um, uh, with the, the science of learning, which is really exciting, and most certainly with the science of reading, which is absolutely urgent work. Um, I love what you said about, so so inquiry can absolutely work, but we are, like you said, we've only got that certain number of seconds with our students. So you can't, you can learn deeply through inquiry, but we don't have, you need, we need to be using the most efficient and effective um, teaching methodologies that we can get our hands on because the one thing that every single teacher in Australia and around the world can all agree on is that we're all time poor. So we don't have enough time to for everybody to, you know, take their time in the learning journey and see, you know, all get to the end result because we know that science of learning says you need 24 to 40 exposures of, of things and then you've got to be able to hand on heart and make sure that every one of them has that. So it's it's 
the 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 intellectual conversations that I get to have with the teachers in your system, Ross, about their deep understanding of the science of learning and what they're doing, it's it's really, really exciting stuff. This is so far beyond lip service and they are they're living it, dreaming it, they're discussing it in meetings, they're they're engaging actively in coaching. They're they're um today I've had data sets just thrown at me. Look at this. This is where we started. And this is, this was it. And this is the us. And then this is the rest of Australia. And then have a look at this one. This is the rest of Australia. And this is where we started. And this is where we are now. And can you, you know, I'm doing this for my kids. And um, so there's the individual stories. There's the big stories of the classes and the cohorts. Um, it's really, really, really exciting stuff. Can I, and can I just add, it's prompted me to just to think about a couple of things um, in your reflection. So one of the early insights for us, we kept um, thinking and thinking. We didn't want to move too fast. We didn't want sort of action that wasn't going to help the teachers. And we did come up with a mantra that was incredibly useful in guiding our work, which was the teacher's the most important learner in our system. Because if we take care of the teacher, they're going to take care of the students, no problem at all. So we, we held to that. And so that really led us to say, well, of course, this has got to be a professional learning um, program and initiative. And really, of course, there's lots of conceptions about professional learning and probably overwhelmingly most professional learning is ineffective at changing practice in classrooms. Mm-hmm. So we, we did think really hard about this and realised that if we we're going to have professional learning that changed practice, it had to have four components. And the first component is relatively novel, actually, that you've referred to. We realised that people needed the theory to understand the theory. And in many instances, most of our teachers didn't have access to this theory about the science of learning, the science of reading, Rosenstein's principles instruction, the role of explicit instruction, the role of knowledge um, in creativity, all of those things. And so we had to have professional learning that gave everyone access to the theory, that then gave them, like our experience in Perth, gave them an example of what good practice was, a demonstration of good practice and what it could be, because it's so hard to think up yourself. And then it needed to be followed by an opportunity to practice it yourself, to have a go, and then, of course, the coaching and feedback in real classrooms with real students, because that's what we're trying to do. That's ultimately the aim. And so unless we put together those four components, the theory, the demonstration, the practice and the coaching, the reinforcement and feedback, we weren't, we didn't really have a hope. It was hugely heroic in order to get support teachers to make the practice change that was going to be in the interest of students. And so that was quite an insight for us, but incredibly onerous to work out how you put those pieces together. And, you know, it's really exciting to see the recommendations for changes in the university degrees. Um, it's a really interesting commentary because I think that there's still many university academics who are very uh, nervous, feeling a bit vulnerable. They think they're quite dismissive that anything needs to change. My clear experience is the schools who are really doing well, when they have a practicum teacher from university come and teach with them, the teacher more often than not admits they don't know anything about the work we're doing as a result of their uni degree. They're learning it all from their colleagues in the school. So that's a that's a concern for me. Look, we haven't got the only way to approach it, of course. But that, uh, that's the thing, by the way, I'm very passionate about. We're not trying to tell everyone what to do. We're trying to build an intellectual community who's got great clarity around what 
effective learning and teaching looks like. And it's done by teachers interrogating and looking at the evidence, the literature, the podcasts, the readings themselves, talking with colleagues and refining their practice. And I think we've had, you know, it's very promising success, but it's really encouraging to see the recommendations of the recent Scott Review um, recommending that, you know, we, in the future, it's possible that the teachers we're hiring out of university will actually have the knowledge we have, but our experience to date is largely people haven't had that knowledge, unfortunately. Yeah. I, th- I think it goes back to, though, there's um, some of the, the people in the in the universities right now, it's what they've hung their hat on, uh, like the com- yeah. same conversations as you were having with those principals right back at the start. They've, they've built their entire careers and lives off alternative theories and um and it takes uh it will be it'll take some courage for them to actually recognize that this uh, this is the our kids the kids of australia's learning that's actually at risk here yep and it's not just their professional background it's also um you know a lot of them attach their identity and their ego to to these ideas that they're pushing forward yeah. so that becomes the motive for them to you know push their ideas rather than looking at what the um the data's telling us yeah it's um some of the the really exciting uh we're talking about ego there's there's lots of teachers that I've um been working with that have been teaching for a long time and so the de-learning process Mm-hmm. is and what we know about the science of the learning the de-learning process is a very onerous process so to see so many experienced teachers uh get on board with e- engaging this research and then you know choosing to change their practices because now they know this and and it's a it's a it's a slog to go through that process but then seeing them tell the stories. It was one of those those student those those teachers who wrapped this da- data down in front of me um, today, and uh, the that seeing the pride in what they're doing with their classes, and they they've got all of that experience with all of those relationships. It's not just knowing the kids' names. There's lots of things that they have to automaticity that isn't taking a cognitive load for them. So they were able to invest their cognitive load in learning this new stuff, mm. which is has been really really exciting. And then these young people coming out of university, for some of them, hopefully this will be the only thing that they know. They just know the science of learning and, and what works and then that will be their default to, if in doubt, um, do a bit more of this. Mm. Exciting times. Tell us, um, do we have any some any data sets, Ross? Uh, yes. Uh, so um, I'm cautious. So we have some data. I'm always cautious of overclaiming because it's very difficult, as you know, to track between classroom and... 1,000 classrooms? Yeah, but between 2019 and 2022, I'll just sort of try and unpack this data. In 2019 and 2022 on our primary school NAPLAN results, there are 28 uh, Catholic dioceses in Australia. We're one of 28. Uh, On improvement change in the average score across the five domains in um, year three and year five our diocese was um, in the top four for improvement in nine out of ten domains uh, on year three and year five so mm-hmm. and uh, um, many times we were uh, we were um, uh, so in the top four there's only three others who and sometimes we we're at number one sometimes we we're number two but we're in the top four, nine out of ten of those, and s- sometimes the uh, dioceses who are ahead of us were very small, so much more of a cohort effect. 
uh, potentially. Yep. And so, but it just seems four, you know, in the top four out of 28 and nine out of 10 domains in mm. year three and year five, amazing improvement. Um, and yep. that's sort of about a year and a half of effort of our teachers. So, and by the way, so when you look at our raw achievement or absolute achievement, both relative to socioeconomic background and, um, uh, and absolute achievement, uh, we, we're not where we want to be. Like we're not the top performer. We're not often in the top two performers in those domains, but the improvement is fantastic. Yeah. So there's every reason to say we're going to get better and better at this. We've just done, we're rolling out what we think are very efficient assessments. So we're using PADR and PADM. There'll be some system-wide data available this year for the first time with huge coverage at, uh, in the next few weeks. But we've just completed the phonics screening check for all of our year one students. We've hit 70% um, of students passing the benchmark of 28 out of 40. and it's taken other systems, um, you know, many a number of years to get anywhere near that. We think we can get better. Um, and in many instances, our schools in New South Wales, typically smaller, typically more remote, are doing very well on the assessment measures and particularly the phonics screening check. So it means that we've got great confidence, the focus on early literacy and the skill acquisition of those students, the knowledge acquisition about uh, phonemes and their fluency building, et cetera, they are building the right knowledge from the right practice. So phonics screening tech's really good. We've got dibbles across the system and it's showing yeah. great progress in the early years. Um, so many, many fewer students in intervention across the year. Uh, so on those data points, NAPLAN, the phonics screening check, dibbles, and I'll have some information on PADR and PADM in the coming weeks. Look, there's every reason to believe, yeah, we're doing really well. Um, we can always do better. So I think now, you know, I'm encouraged when I hear comments, and I've heard them regularly, of teachers, particularly in primary school, saying three or four years ago, we didn't even think the students could achieve what they're now achieving. Mm. Um, and so our, our expectations are being re-rated. That's really exciting. Every child can learn. Every yeah, child can learn. We've potentially been limiting our students by our own beliefs, but yeah. and it wasn't for want of effort. So we're seeing great results. So we're look, it's it's cautious optimism. We're making great progress. There's some objective evidence of that. In classrooms, I'm seeing huge changes. Uh, the feedback from our parents is really profound. They're saying their students are talking about what they learn at school in a way yeah. they've never heard them talk about it. Um, students are telling me directly that the the commitment to mastery, the commitment to the daily review is so good at helping them get knowledge into their long-term memory and it means they're well-placed to apply that knowledge in a creative way. So, you know, it, all the things are coming together. I'm very optimistic. We've got some really good objective progress, but there's I know that there's a lot more we can do and who knows where we can uh, get to in terms of system achievement. Absolutely. And I, I, I'm so excited that uh, so that the there's definitely been talk over the years that I've been involved. Uh, is this going to stick around? Are we going to stick with this? We can see this work is working, and there's obviously an absolute commitment to the uh, to your archdiocese that um, of Canberra and Goulburn that this is this is sticking around. Um, this is the long game, and I am super excited to see what the next if that's been 2019 to 2022. What, yes, yeah, seeing those comparisons over the next couple of years is going to be really interesting to track. 
Yeah, it's very exciting. And look, we're we're going to uh, we are not going to diminish our commitment to high quality learning and teaching. Um, it's got to be what we're good at. And then uh, in the past, perhaps there was ideas that you deal with the well being of students first, and then their learning. I guess what we're what I think we're seeing and learning is that through learning you can deal with well-being. It improves student well-being. Success is one of the greatest ways to enhance student well-being. And so success on academic outcomes is great for student well-being. So there's all these things which in the past we might have thought about the reverse way, that motivation would drive academic outcomes. We're perhaps seeing academic outcomes driving motivation and engagement. Um, We're seeing academic outcomes drive well-being. We're seeing um, great learning and teaching driving lower incidence of student behaviour that's distracting. Mm-hmm. So all of those things, we're learning a lot and we're making so much progress. Brilliant. So can I – sorry, go, Whitey. No, I'm just saying that, that empowering, just empowering the student there is, is um, you know, it's inspiring. I mean, that's it's linked to everything, isn't it? Hmm. Mm. So, um, Ross, we are really big in Malaysia. We're really big. Where else are we really big? We're really big in Spain. Oh, we were um, big in Spain. I don't know where yeah. Pablo's gone. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> UK and US. So there are some system leaders who are on here listening to um, to, the, to to this podcast. So if somebody is uh, at a system level and wants to find out more about the work that's been done or there's there's other teachers or the like out there, where could they go to find out more information about about what's been happening at your system of schools? Yeah, collaboration and sharing is a really core commitment of ours. If you search Catalyst, Catalyst is the name of our teaching and learning program, Catalyst Canberra Goulburn on Google or other search engines, I'm sure you'll find if there's a great uh, website that we've put together with all our learning resources. There are some things that are not on there for copyright and other reasons, but if you reach out, um, our education leaders, um, our people, our principals are always happy to welcome visitors. Uh, we've had a huge number this year from other systems, government, Catholic and independent schools. Um, so I'd start with that search catalyst, Canberra Goulburn, have a look at the website. If you want to know more, please get in touch. We want to learn. We want to collaborate. Uh, we all share the aspiration for better learning and teaching. Um, and we're so pleased to uh, welcome people and engage in that professional conversation. That is absolutely right. fabulous. Uh, well, I want to say congratulations to you and to pass on to all of your uh, one, you know, thousands of teachers uh, that you're, the teachers I work with, I've been working with. I want to give them a shout out. Um, last year, I was working with St. Joseph's at Grenfell, St. Mary's at Young, Holy Trinity in Curtin, St. John Vianney's in Warramanga and St. Bede's recording from the beautiful uh, Deputy Principal's Office today in St. Bede's in uh, Red Hill. Teachers are absolutely fabulous really committed to these uh, academic outcomes for these students. And, yeah, thank you for leading such inspiring work and having having this vision and taking them on this journey. It's really, really exciting stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's been a great pleasure to share it with you and happy to talk any time and I'll, I'll uh, continue my avid listing to your podcast. Oh, good. Well done. Well yeah, done, good. Mr. Fox. Excellent. All right. Well, he's a very busy man uh, leading 22,000-plus kids and 3,000 teachers, so we're going to let you go. So we will see everybody next week. So good afternoon, Mr. Fox. Good afternoon. <laughs> Thank you. Good afternoon, Mr. White. Good afternoon, Mrs. Angel. Good afternoon. All right. See everyone. <laughs> See ya.